You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Good morning, Northway. So good to see you. Happy Father's Day, you dads out there. Uh, And I have a Father's Day sermon for you. It is straight out of John Wick. Uh, It is going to be unlike a sermon that you have probably heard. Uh, I'm going to invite you to turn to Judges chapter 3. We are going to be looking at the story of Ehud. And if you're unfamiliar with this story, you are in for a treat. Um, But there is something significant that I think the Lord's going to communicate to us because every story in the Scripture points to the hope and mercy of Jesus Christ. And even though this is one of those ones, as we have been warning you about, that is uh, decidedly PG-13, TV-14, kind of a R for violence. Uh, Parents, I want you to take note of that. This story is graphic in its detail, but it is one of those ones that nonetheless points to the hope we have in a Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And so I'm going to pray for us as we get ready to jump in and talk a little bit about this story. We're going to read it and think through what God has to say for us this morning. Um, But before I do that, let me introduce myself. My name is Brady Goodwin. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're new, uh, visiting at Northway, I want to welcome you and thank you for being with us. Um, But let's pray as we begin our time together this morning. Father, we come to you Believing your word, that in Isaiah 55, that your word does not return void, that it goes to the very places you intend for it to go, that it um, bears fruit and, and produces transformation in our lives as we allow it to shape us and um, teach us of the mercy that has been revealed through Jesus Christ. We pray that as we look at this text this morning, that you uh, would help us to see even in a story that is, is unusual for us, that it communicates your mercy, it communicates your, um, your grace, your love, your deliverance. We ask that you would help us to have eyes to see that and ears to hear it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, we are in week three of our short summer series on the book of Judges. Last week, Burton French looked at Othniel, the first named judge in Israel who was identified as the younger brother of Caleb. And this was a brief account, but his story introduced the cycle that Shay talked about a couple of weeks back that is first mentioned in Judges chapter 2, verses 11 through 19, and that is replicated throughout the book. And that cycle is this, just as a way of review, that after Israel entered into the land, because they did not do what God asked them to do, to conquest the land of Canaan, they descended into idolatry. I'm going to talk about what that is in just a moment, if that's an unfamiliar term. They descended into idolatry because they were there with the other nations who did not know God and who did not worship God. The text is so sorrowful in saying at the beginning of Judges that after Joshua died, another generation arose who did not know the Lord. And they descended into idolatry. The second part of this cycle is that God judged Israel because of her sin. That in a series of escalating events, God put the nation of Israel under judgment through the nations that surrounded them. Third, Israel cried out for mercy. 
They lamented the state of their condition, which led to fourth, God raising up a judge to deliver his people. After that, fifth, God would grant deliverance through that judge, which led to sixth, the land and the people experiencing rest as a result of the judge's deliverance. And then lastly, seventh, the judge would die and the cycle would continue again. Othniel was the first. The story of Ehud that we're going to look at today is the second. But what I want you to notice and keep in your mind as we read this story, because it's going to become more relevant as we go through the rest of this series, is that one significant aspect of this cycle is the increasing and escalating nature of Israel's sin following the death of each judge. This Escalation is described in Judges 2, verse 19, which says this, whenever the judge died, Israel turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods, serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. In other words, things would get worse each time the judge would die. And we see this, the story of Judges does not end with a happy ending. It ends in a very despairing and depressing way, but it's all designed to point us to the need that we have for a deliverer. Last week when we looked at Othniel, it set the standard for the judges. It sort of set the the example. It included all seven of these aspects, his story, and Ehud follows the same pattern and gives us another example But it provides the first, as we mentioned, of several gruesome accounts that illustrate the increasing severity of Israel's rebellion and their need for a true deliverer. So what we're going to see today is that despite the graphic nature of this story, it also provides us with several theological truths, several truths about God and his work among his people that help coalesce into one main theme, which is this, that God delivers. And he delivers according to his mercy in line with his purposes to display his glory. God delivers according to his mercy in line with his purposes to display his glory. As we explore this main idea, we're going to look at the story of Ehud. We're going to read it in all of its detail. And I asked a friend, Are you, do, you, do you know this story? No. And if you don't know this story, again, I just want to prepare you. It's, it's a little extreme. And think about the context. This is something that would have been written about 3,000 years ago or occurred 3,000 years ago and would have been transcribed after that. And so just think about the significance. But after we look at the story, we are going to look at those truths before we finally look at how we can apply what we read, what we learn to our lives in the hope of the gospel, the good news about Jesus. Okay, you guys ready? Okay, let's look at the story of Ehud. Judges 3, starting in verse 12. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord strengthened Eglon, the king of Moab, against Israel because they had done what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He gathered to himself the Ammonites and the Amalekites and went and defeated Israel. And they took possession of the city of Palms, which is Jericho, if you're wondering. 
And the people of Israel served Eglon, the king of Moab, 18 years. Then the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, and the Lord raised up for them a deliverer, Ehud, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite, a left-handed man. The people of Israel sent tribute by him to Eglon, the king of Moab. And Ehud made for himself a sword with two edges, a cubit in length, and he bound it on his right thigh under his clothes. And he presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon was a very fat man. And when Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he sent away the people who carried the tribute. But he himself turned back at the idols near Gilgal and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. And he commanded silence. And all his attendants went out from his presence. And Ehud came to him as he was sitting alone in his cool roof chamber. And Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And he arose from his seat. And Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and thrust it into his belly. And the hilt also went in after the blade, and the fat closed over the blade, for he did not pull the sword out of his belly, and the dung came out. Then Ehud went out into the porch and closed the doors of the roof chamber behind him and locked them. When he had gone, the servants came, and when they saw that the doors of the roof chamber were locked, they thought, surely he is relieving himself in the closet of the the cool chamber. And they waited till they were embarrassed. But when he still did not open the doors of the roof chamber, they took the key and opened them, and there lay their Lord dead on the floor. Ehud escaped while they delayed, and he passed beyond the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived, he sounded the trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim. Then the people of Israel went down with him from the hill country, and he was their leader. And he said to them, follow after me, for the Lord has given your enemies, the Moabites, into your hand. So they went down after him and seized the fords of the Jordan against the Moabites and did not allow anyone to pass over. And they killed at that time about 10,000 of the Moabites, all strong, able-bodied men, not a man escaped. So Moab was subdued that day under the hand of Israel, and the land had rest for 80 years. Happy Father's Day. Um, I know this is a bit unusual, right? I mentioned this. This is not the kind of story that we typically hear preached and taught in a Sunday gathering, but one of the things we're doing, as we'll talk about in a little, in a few minutes, is allowing the scriptures to shape and form our understanding of God's deliverance. And we have to dig into some of these places that may have a little bit of uh, discomfort for us. But I want you to see why we would do this in just a moment. But notice first that the narrative is pretty straightforward despite the gory content. It's nothing especially unusual. After Othniel's death, Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, the text here doesn't state what Israel did specifically, but we can infer based upon the preceding account 
in Judges 3, verse 7, that they once again forgot the Lord, that they instead served other gods. And just like we mentioned, the first aspect of this cycle, Israel descended and turned once again to idolatry, which is just a word that means the worshiping of false gods. Idolatry is a theme that runs throughout Scripture. In the Old Testament, idolatry usually referred to the literal worship of the gods of other nations. And Isaiah 44 has a very um, vivid picture of false worship of idols where someone literally cuts a tree down, they fashion from that tree an idol, they take wood from the same tree in order to construct a fire and burn an offering to that idol, never realizing that they are falling prey to the folly of false worship for selfish reasons. The New Testament, this meaning is expanded And idolatry then describes any kind of false worship or disordered desire, not just the exaltation of a named false god, the creating of an object where we bow down and worship, but anything that diverts our attention and allegiance away from the one true God. Whatever the description, idolatry always reflects four characteristics. The first is this, there is a rejection of God's authority. There's a rejection of God's authority that is expressed through prideful self-exaltation. What does that mean? It means someone saying, I don't need God. If they're not saying that, they're instead saying, I don't give God authority over me. That's the first thing, a rejection of his authority. This is followed up by the replacing of the rightful worship of God with an aspect of God's creation or a creation of one's own hand. I mentioned Isaiah 44 in that account. But this means in our modern age, something like I will look to other people. I will consume other people, substances, things, anything that can validate my belief that I can be my own God. Notice here, there isn't just the worship of a thing, but the worship of something for prideful reasons. Instead of bowing down to God as authoritative, it's us serving ourselves and finding something that will increase our own exaltation. Third, there is the reaping of these, uh, of, of what we might actually call some initial perceived benefits of the idol. There's a kind of um, temporary elation that people feel when they fall prey to this kind of worship. They actually feel stronger at the beginning. But this um, gives way to the inevitable subsequent experience of the damaging effects of a person's idolatry. It It goes something like this. A person says, I'm invincible. Nothing can touch me before it gives way to, I am broken and I am enslaved. And this leads to the fourth aspect that we still nonetheless resist the glory of God. We resist the rightful recognition of his beauty, his majesty, and his splendor through repentance and faith, and we return to the pattern again, but we believe the lie that somehow the results will be different. Does that sound familiar to any of us? It should. It's familiar to us because it was familiar to Israel because it's familiar to all people. But because they were warned As they were warned time and again, Israel rejected God's rightful rule. And as such, they forgot him. 
And they descended once more into idolatry, or as the text says, doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord. But I want you to see that it was not so much that they were doing evil things, which they were, it's that they were living as if the true God wasn't real. And this brings us to the first theological truth that I want us to see today. I mentioned that we're going to look at several truths. This is the first of six that we're going to see this morning. And it's this, that the essence of all sin, the essence of all sin against God is pride. It is forgetting who God is by exalting ourselves and that this leads to idolatry, which is the worshiping of another God besides the one true God. This is what's behind every rebellion, every rejection of God's authority, every disobedience of his commands. It's us saying, God, you do not have the right to have authority over me. I instead will be my own authority. But because that human capacity for worship still exists in our hearts, we gravitate toward things to fill that gap that God himself intends to to take. This is the essence of all sin. So what followed Israel's idolatry? It continues this pattern that we have already seen. We mentioned that first, Israel would descend into idolatry. Second, God judged them for their sin. Notice that he says in this passage that he strengthened Eglon, king of Moab, against Israel. And this led to Israel's subjugation under the Moabites for 18 years. Can you imagine? 18 years ago, what was I doing? I was about to start college. That's what I was doing. I don't know what you were doing. 18 years, that's a long time. Things have changed. But what we start to see immediately as we continue thinking about this narrative is that we are confronted with two additional theological truths. The second one is this, because God is inestimably holy, which means he is more holy than we can imagine, more holy than we can even understand, he will not tolerate the usurpation of lesser gods in the hearts of his people. He is not going to let it slide for us to elevate a false God in our hearts. God's holiness, his perfect moral righteousness is so significant, so massive that he cannot permit the sinful rebellion of his image bearers to continue without judgment. Despite the lies that we tell ourselves, we are not invincible. We are not free to do whatever and however we please. God will rightly exercise his justice and his judgment against our idolatry and rebellion. This is actually known as God's wrath. That term may press on you, but I want you to understand that it's actually a really important thing because it means that God doesn't look at sin blindly. He doesn't turn his eye away from it. He actually deals with it. And we're gonna see in a few moments, if we know the whole story of scripture, we know that him dealing with sin is the whole point, that he's dealt with the problem of our sinfulness through Jesus. But in Israel's case, in this story, God's wrath was expressed through the oppression of Eglon and the Moabites. Shay talked about this a couple of weeks ago, but the Moabites were the worst of the worst. And they put Israel in bondage for that 18-year stretch. 
As Burton taught us last week, this would have likely been expressed through physical, economic, as well as spiritual means. But they faced the due penalty for their sin, just as God promised they would if they returned to their idolatry. So maybe you're thinking about what we're saying so far, and there's a couple of objections that may rise up as you think about all that you know about the Lord, all you know about his word. The first is a seeming inconsistency. It's, a, it's an idea that, that would find its articulation in this way, that God is capricious, which is just a word meaning he's unstable, he's wishy-washy, he's inconsistent, he doesn't do the same thing all the time. And that this, this kind of seeming inconsistency between God's judgment and his mercy. I mean, Israel was God's people a people whom he loved earlier in the scriptures. It said that he loves them because he loves them, not because of anything they have done, but simply because they are his own. So what gives? What is going on here with his judgment against sin? What about his mercy? What about his grace? The second is an extension of this, is that God uses a blatantly more idolatrous nation as a means of judgment against Israel. Moab was not a righteous nation, but God uses this unrighteous king against Israel. And you read this, and it likely presses a little bit on on your own sense of justice. This can't be right. Israel is warned not to become like the other nations, but then they're judged by the very nation that they're warned not to become. And these objections are going to find a response as the narrative continues. What happened next, as we read, is that Israel cried out for mercy. And God demonstrated his mercy by raising up a deliverer, Ehud, the Benjaminite. He's described as a left-handed man, which we'll talk about in a moment, probably means either that he had some sort of physical disability that precluded him to being able to use his right hand, which was normal, or he was so skilled and he was ambidextrous, ambidextrous, dexterous, excuse me, um, and he could use both hands. I'm left-handed. I don't know if that's relevant to this story, but <laughs> I thought that was a fun thing. But hear this. This points to the third theological truth, okay? Just as God is inestimably holy, he is also unceasingly merciful. And he longs to deliver those who are ensnared by idols, but who call upon him through faith and repentance. God is merciful and he longs to deliver his people. We see this heart clearly expressed all throughout the scriptures. Isaiah says it in this way, that I would have, uh, in, in in returning and repentance, you would have found your rest. You would have found what you were looking for, but you wouldn't do it. Jesus in Matthew 9, verse 36, he looks out over Jerusalem and he says that he has, he's he's filled with compassion because they were like sheep without a shepherd. But in this account in Judges 3, verses 12 through 30, Israel cries out and God raises up Ehud as a deliverer. But we should not understand Israel's cry as one of true repentance. They cried out instead because of the harshness of their situation rather than in remorse over their behavior. In 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, the scriptures will use the term worldly sorrow 
to describe this kind of response. It's what happens when we are more grieved by the circumstantial consequences and the effects of our sin than we are the offense of the sin itself against God. But notice, God still acted despite the less than faithful heart cries of his people. And so we see here a principle that is illustrated often by way of contrast in the scripture. God often acts with mercy towards his people, even when their hearts are not aligned with his by faith. Psalm 130 says it in this way, if you, O Lord, should count iniquity, O Lord, who could stand? But with you, there is steadfast forgiveness that you may be feared. We sang earlier that beautiful song, our sins, they are many, but his mercy is more. Now this should not lead us to dismiss the severity of our sin, but rather to see that the scriptures show us again and again, the truth of Romans two, verse four, that it is God's kindness that is meant to lead us to repentance. He is kind to us even when we are faithless. He truly is a good father who does justly discipline us, but nonetheless does not treat us as our sins truly deserve. But what about God's use of a wicked nation to bring judgment? How does this square with what we have seen so far in the account of Ehud and Eglon? And this brings us to the fourth theological truth. God's providence, okay, which is just a, it's just a word that means his sovereign and purposeful action. God's providence means that he ordains all the specific events of our lives to accomplish all of his wise purposes. God ordains all the specific events of our lives to accomplish all of his wise purposes and that the chief ends of such actions are his glory and the good of people. Okay, follow me, because this is a weird story, remember. God's providence means that he ordains all the specific actions of our, events of our lives to accomplish his purposes, and that the chief ends of such actions are his glory and the good of people. The text is clear that it was the Lord who strengthened Eglon against the nation of Israel. In other words, it was God's doing to bring Israel under subjection. This was not an aimless action, but one that indicated God's purposes. And in this specific case, it was to demonstrate the costliness of sin, the consequences of rebellion against God and the necessity of true repentance. But I want you to see that God's actions, even though they were providential, they were not malicious. They were intentional, but they were not wicked. God intended for Israel to see the devastating realities of idolatry and rebellion against him, to see the real and actual cost that comes as the fruit of sin, and to be able to know the only real means by which restoration and healing can come, which is from turning away from sin and turning to God by faith. And so whether it's an unjust nation, as we see here, whether it's challenging life circumstances that you may be experiencing, or perhaps the weight of conviction over your own sin, the enduring message of the scriptures is that God is sovereign and in control of it all. And he is using those experiences for a specific 
purpose. And that purpose is this, that his glory, okay, it's a word we use a lot, but not with often, not often with definition. His glory, which just means the fullest expression of his love, his mercy, his holiness, his character, that that purpose is that his glory would be fully known by us. That we would actually know God. We would actually see him for who he is. We would believe him. We would know the fullness of his love. And what we see in the scriptures is that he will use whatever means necessary to ensure that his glory is ultimately revealed. As we've seen already in our discussion in the book of Judges, the last couple of weeks up until today, and we're gonna see in the next few weeks is that the events that comprise this narrative are included to establish an expectation and a longing for ultimate deliverance, that God's saving work in response to our sin would be fully and finally known. That's what he's after, which of course has also to do with God's goodness towards us. This glory, this expression of his love and of his mercy and of his power and of his character is meant to be shared with his people. He longs for us to know rest, to know peace, to know and experience true joy as those who love him and are loved by him in return. What business do we have speaking of God's glory love and mercy when we think about the grotesque nature of what we just read? How does that connect? Um, especially for you who may be reading this for the first time, and you go, what, his what came out? This brings us to the fifth theological truth, which is that God's word reflects the outworking of God's providential purposes in ways that confront native human expectations about his work, but nonetheless demonstrate his goodness and his wisdom. His word confronts us. His word comes right up against the way that we think things should go. God's words depict his actions as well as the actions of his human deliverers in ways that defy our sensibilities. The judges are in many ways the exemplars for this principle because Ehud is actually pretty tame compared to some of the folks that we're going to read about in a few weeks. But the same thing could be said for Moses or David or Solomon or others, leaders who are described elsewhere in the scriptures as faithful and godly, but who were nonetheless flawed in remarkable ways. But in addition, we are often faced with this image of God in scripture that disagrees with the present standards of morality in whatever age we may be living. It's not something that's unique to the postmodern, post-Christian West, but it's something common to humanity who is by its very nature opposed to God's rule. And so we find ourselves struggling with questions like, why did God do that? Why did he permit this evil or this suffering to happen? What does this say about his character? This story of Ehud, along with the look at, at Moabite excess, there's a kind of satire that's happening here, the fact that Eglon is called a very fat man is meant to show that they were kind of drowning under the weight of their own excesses. 
This seeming glorification of violence as a means of deliverance, what Ehud did, it provides a very significant example of this principle. We read it and we go, that's gross. I don't like this. That's horrific. Why would something like that be in the Bible? And what I want us to see is that though such questions are understandable, there is a subtle way in which our posing them can reflect questioning of God's purposes and underneath it, an assumption that we actually know a better way. We read through passages like this. If we do it at that lens, it prevents us from seeing that rather than glorifying grotesque violence, this passage is actually meant to reveal a vivid picture of the profound folly and excess of sin that will come in a person's life on the one hand and the singularly divine nature of God's deliverance on the other. Moab is a picture of what Israel would become if they did not turn truly from their sin. And Ehud was not the deliverer that was the most qualified, And he therefore needed to rely upon God's power to deliver rather than his own strength. Both aspects of this story illustrate the truth that even though it confounds us at times, God's word still demonstrates his goodness and his wisdom, even if there is mystery in how this works out in the near term. And this brings us to the last truth for us this morning. God's providential working to bring deliverance through Ehud points to the salvation of God's people that would one day come through Jesus Christ. It actually points to our Lord. Like other accounts in the book of Judges, Ehud's story foreshadows another deliverer. We've mentioned before this entire account is meant to show us how sin will shipwreck our lives but that God's desire is to demonstrate his love and his mercy. The Old Testament patiently builds through its pages the expectation of a true deliverer, whereby God's love and his mercy would be fully known. That deliverer is Jesus Christ. Like Israel, we were in bondage to our idolatry and rebellion. As Titus 3 would say, passing our days in malice hated by others and hating one another. Like Israel, we cried out for mercy, but often in a half-hearted, disingenuous way. Like Israel, we felt the pain and the weight of our guilt and our shame that we had no hope and we were without God in the world. Our estate was like theirs, lost, destitute, and empty. But like Ehud, Jesus was set apart for the deliverance of his people. Like Ehud, he had no form or majesty that we should regard him. But like Ehud, he boldly acted to slay the enemy of God's people, putting sin itself to death through his death on the cross. But unlike Ehud, Jesus was more powerful than death. And rising from the grave, he brought freedom to all those who were held in bondage because of their sin, to the captives whose hearts were dead, but who yearned for life. Like Ehud, Jesus has brought rest to the people of God. But unlike Ehud, this rest will not end, but will continue until it is one day ushered in in its fullness when Jesus returns and all those who love him are raised 
to an eternal life with him. A life that's free of any hint of bondage that we have known in this life. Can you imagine that? A life where you don't struggle. A life where you don't wrestle with condemnation. A life where all of your anxieties are resolved. That's the life that is coming for those who love Jesus and are known by him. Judges is part of this grand narrative, but it's not the story's focus. Jesus Christ, the risen and reigning king, is the main character of not only this story, but of all of history. But for us to be able to benefit from these six truths, we have to work to apply them to our own lives in light of that hope, in light of the good news about Jesus. So I want to work through a couple of these applications with you, and then we'll finish our time this morning. The first is this. You and I have to guard against complacency amid the idols of our culture and of our own lives. The real issue with Israel is that they became like the other nations who did not know God. And I want to ask you, in what ways are you just like the rest of our culture? In what ways that if your life was examined, there would be no distinction that has come because of the grace of Jesus? What are the things that you have elevated in your life that reflect the values of a culture that doesn't know God? How are you just like everybody else? Because it's not just the culture that presses upon you, it's the temptations that arise in your own heart that pull you towards them. We have to be able to see that and guard against it. The only way we guard against it is by drawing near to Christ and asking for his help. Second, we have to grow in recognizing where we are prone, not if we are prone, but where we are prone to respond to sin with worldly sorrow rather than true repentance. And so think about it in this way. Perhaps you are confronted with some sinful pattern in your life? Are you more upset about the exposure? Are you more upset about the cost that it brings to a relationship than you are about the offense that it brings before a God who is inestimably holy? Where is your repentance truly rooted? Is it more about yourself and your suffering, or is it about what your sin has reflected before God and before other people? We have to be able to see the difference because there is a huge difference between saying, I'm sorry, sometimes. Sometimes I'm sorry means the right thing. But there's a big difference between saying, I'm sorry, golly, and I have sinned. Will you forgive me? We have to be able to see where we are prone to respond with worldly sorrow. Third, we must learn to see the purposeful ordering of our lives by God's sovereign hand. Everything that you experience in your life comes because God has put it in your life. Everything. You go, okay, I have a question. What about this thing that happened over here? Yes. Even though it led to these results. Yes. Then God is not good. Hold on. We have to be able to see that our view is very limited, but God's view is unlimited. 
the events that happen in your lives, even the ones that seem to be the most devastating, are nonetheless part of God's plan of redemption to help you see his glory and the power of his saving work. And you will find more freedom than you can ever know in being able to trust his hand even when things seem really scary. Fourth, we have to look to God for help when we struggle rather than setting out on our own from a posture of forgetfulness. One of the things that the scriptures attest to in 2 Peter of chapter 1 is that as we seek God, this is a paraphrase, as we seek God, we are more aware of the knowledge of God. That passage says something like this, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, which is just a way of saying he's given you what you need to know him. But he says, this comes through the knowledge of him who's called us by his own glory and excellence. And he goes on, he says, for this reason, because God has given you what you need, make every effort to supplement your faith. He doesn't mean add to it. He means strengthen it, build it up through knowledge, virtue, love, all of the things that represent life in Christ. And then he says something really, really key. He says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. To put it another way, as we pursue God, as we cling to him, as we delight in his word, as we rejoice in his grace, we actually are strengthened in the knowledge of him. Conversely, if we neglect these realities in our lives, the text says anyone who is lacking these qualities has become so nearsighted that he is blind. Having forgotten, he was cleansed from his former sins. If we neglect these things, we shouldn't be surprised if we begin to forget the grace of God and who he is. And so we have to look to God when we struggle, even when it feels like the shame would keep us from him. Even when it feels like the threat of exposure prevents us and precludes us from drawing near, that somehow he sees us in a way that's different than what his word says, which is that he does not count our sins according to what we deserve. Psalm 32 says, blessed is the man whose sins the Lord forgives. They're covered, which means we must go to him when we struggle instead of setting out on our own. Fifth, we must allow our lives to be shaped by the scriptures rather than reading into the text the presuppositions that our discomfort reveals. There's something about you when you look at this and say, that's wrong, that represents a belief that's held in your heart that's opposed to the nature of God. Okay, you can work that out with me because it doesn't mean that you don't have space to ask questions, but it means that anytime you point a finger of accusation at the Lord and say, you did it wrong, you are bringing your own presuppositions to bear, your own beliefs to bear, rather than those that are shaped and molded by the scriptures. And then lastly, as we look and consider the way that Jesus has saved us. Okay, think of Isaiah 53 says this, it was the father's plan to crush him. He has put him to grief. Peter says that by the divine foreknowledge and purpose of God, Jesus was put to death on the cross and rose from the dead. This helps us to be able to trust God's goodness and his wisdom in every circumstance. 
If he was at work then in the darkest day of history to bring about a salvation and a redemption greater than you and I could ever know, something that made sense of all of the brokenness of the world, then we can trust him in the moments when we can't see the resolution just yet. Okay, let's think about this main theme that we've said this morning. God delivers according to his mercy in line with his purposes for his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these truths that even in a story that confronts us, even in a story that doesn't look like good news on the, on the front end, that there is powerful redemption that is at work because of what you have done through Jesus Christ. Help us to see the breath of your faithfulness. Help us to see your glory at work in the narrative of scripture so that we would be able to say, God, you are faithful. You are a redeeming God, a God who loves, a God who is merciful, a God who does not treat us as our sins deserve, but one who has brought the promise of forgiveness through Christ. Help us to believe and trust these things in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Northway Church. A podcast should never replace gathering with God's people to worship Jesus Christ. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 a.m., 11.15 a.m., and 4 p.m. and would love for you to join us as we encounter the truth, beauty, and goodness of Jesus.